Hello everyone, welcome to Hack and Tell with Arweave. In this episode, Arweave founder Sam Williams will be speaking with Anatoly Yakovenko, CEO and founder of Solana. Enjoy the episode and don't forget to subscribe for future installments. Okay, hi everyone. Ah, there we go. Hey Sam. All right. Hey Sam. Um, yeah. So thanks for taking the time, Anatoly. Um, in this podcast, we normally talk to people in the Awe community that are that are building um, firmware applications, but you guys are working in a sort of different layer uh, with Solana. Uh, yeah, maybe you could tell us a little bit about what Solana is and and how you got started with it. Um, yeah, so Solana is basically a high performance layer one. It's a it's a blockchain. It's permissionless. It's open. It's got a smart contract engine. Um, but what's unique and interesting about what we're doing is um, we're taking a lot of traditional scaling techniques that are kind of common to databases, operating systems like old school horizontal scaling, and we're applying it to every part of the stack of a blockchain and making it as fast as possible. Um, and then we've been pretty successful at it. Um, we've done tasks where we've seen over 50,000 TPS on a global network. Um, and right now we're live on mainnet. Um, there's 130 validators on our incentivized testnet. There's like two, 250 validators. And our smart contracts engine is so cheap that we use it for consensus messages. So there's about 2 billion transactions that have been processed in 100 days um, and like 25 million blocks. So if you, if you just think about it for a second, right? Like we made the chain so cheap that it is our own messaging bus. <laughs> That's fascinating. That's super interesting. I mean, that, that begs a whole bunch of questions. Um, but I guess before we get into like the technical side of things, um, yeah, could you tell us maybe a little bit about how Solana came about? Like, what was the inception? How did you get into blockchain in the first place? That kind of thing. Yeah, so like a bit about my background. Um, I ended up at Qualcomm in 2003, and this is like, if you guys haven't heard of it, it's a semiconductor firm that basically builds all the modems and every cell phone out there. They, they're the people that figured out CDMA and how to deploy it live. They developed LTE and 4G, 5G, all those technologies. Um, and I ended up there in 2003, kind of at a really interesting time. We had flip phones that were like these really old school ARM 16-bit devices. <laughs> and like right as soon as I joined, every year we basically like had a processor change and a process change and an improvement in like every geometric direction in terms of power and complexity. And I was working on operating systems and like kind of building the stuff at breakneck speeds to really like scale like what you have in your hand is effectively a supercomputer compared to 2003 levels if you remember those like old school things so that's kind of my mindset right like i was there and i saw how quickly and rapidly hardware just changes everything and also in the wireless industry and interesting thing is that like in 2017 i was in san francisco and this like whole blockchain boom happened and i've been aware of bitcoin i thought it was like cool you know every engineer has been was aware of bitcoin for a long time like <laughs> because it is a really cool clever thing but like like everyone else i thought this is too slow not gonna scale um 2017 the explosion of ideas was like kind of driven by this like financial explosion in, in, in crypto but 
I saw people trying crazy things, somewhat insane things. That, <laughs> but that kind of started my brain going on this. And uh, I literally just had like, I had this kind of cheesy startup with a buddy of mine using cryptocurrency mining to offset the cost of deep learning equipment. <laughs> Which, right? So like you build okay, up a, a rack of GPUs, right? And while they're idle, they mine crypto. And as soon as there's a, a job to do some deep learning stuff, right? But I started like really thinking about proof of work. Why is this so slow? And I had this realization that the block producer problem is the same problem as in wireless networks. Uh, in fact, like the, the first protocols that people built had the same issue where two towers transmit at the same time or the same frequency get noise, right? So two block producers create yeah. a block at the same time. The network's unstable because nobody knows what the, what the actual state is. So two solutions exist in wireless. One is called this Aloha protocol, which is really old school, but it's basically as soon as you see noise, you do a random, uh, you set a random timer and then you retransmit, yeah. which is proof of work. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, but the cool thing is that like the first optimization that people did is like, why don't we give everybody a clock and then we synchronize by time and that's called time division multiple access. And if everybody has this objectively measurable point of reference of time outside of consensus, right? Like, so this is the key yeah. part. We agree on something outside of consensus, which is time. And then we use that to synchronize ourselves. Wow, so we can't. Right. So, okay. Uh, so, so it's kind of funny that you came from operating systems. Me too. <laughs> I was building a distributed <laughs> operating system as my cool. PhD project before Alweave. So like, I kind of have some background in this. Um, okay, so so just thinking about like networking and what I'm aware of from how those those base layer protocols work. I mean, you normally get some kind of okay. So you get a collision on the wire, right? And then you get um, each party to randomly wait some time and retransmit. And the idea is you get exponential backoff or something similar, where they wait longer and longer to retransmit over time. But of course, this is. I mean, the, the problem that immediately comes to mind is this is not. Um, it's not optimal for people that are taking part in hostile behavior because yeah. you exponentially back off and I don't. And what happens? Well, so, so that is the so, so that is proof of work, right? It is a slow protocol, mm -hmm. and cellular networks they use uh, something called time division multiple access, where instead of using exponential yeah. backoff, we have pre-assigned slots mm -hmm. that I can only transmit a particular at a particular moment in time. And if we if if wow. everybody follows that right, then what we have is no collisions in the network. Um, and then then so on top of that, signed a slot. Oh, sorry. So, so so I had uh, two coffees and a beer, and I was like noodling about proof of work. And this thing like just popped into my head. You can use the same shout to fifty six that you do in proof of work, but use it recursively yeah. and sample it. Uh -huh. And that sample data structure is a representation of time passing somewhere on some single core. Because it's recursive Chateau 56, yes. it cannot be parallelized. The samples allow you right. to verify it in parallel, right? So you have the speed up. And what's cool is that you can take messages and mix it into this data structure. And now you have an, and if these messages reference some of these samples, you now have a relative upper and lower bound of time when these events occurred. So it's almost like a, a water clock that I can start setting notches on and like, okay, at yeah. this point in this water clock, something happened. Um, so, but as soon as I had, I like realized 
I have like an objectively measured source of time outside of consensus, I knew that I could build TDMA. So, and once you have TDMA, you can like start optimizing everything the old school way, like just horizontal scaling. <laughs> Use as many cores oh, as you can. To... Oh, wow. That's so elegant. <laughs> um, huh. Okay. And, and you guys call this like proof of elapsed time, right? Call it proof that... of history um, because everything needs to be proof of something. It's kind of a cheesy name. Um, but it is effectively yeah. like, it's technically a verifiable delay function. So uh, there's a lot of super smart right. folks at Stanford, Dan Bonet, um, that are working on these techniques. And they're much more sophisticated, um, but harder to deal with because they're looking for a solution that is ver- that is verifiable in sub-linear time, like log, log N or something yeah. like that. Our verification is in real time, parallelizable, but it takes the exact same amount of CPU cycles to verify as it does to generate. But because we live in a world where, right, we we live in a world where uh, single instruction multiple data lanes are plentiful, right? (laughs) They're basically like, uh, you know, growing on trees these days, but like AVX2, every, every every chip improvement like doubles that bandwidth. Um, we effectively have a way to do that verification much, much faster than, than it does, um, than it does to generate. So yeah, to give I mean, you an, that, that makes sense. Yeah. Just to give you so an you idea, like, into the chips. yeah. Um, GPU cards have 4,000, like 4,000 SIMD lanes effectively. So we can verify a second in a quarter millisecond. It's like, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so so that's interesting. So you're using recursive hashing as a clock, and then each person gets a slot by. I mean, yeah, that that was my by, question. A couple of by the ago. counter. So, so think of it right, as like right. a, but, but, it's so a spin I lock, have, right? <laughs> right. Right. I I, I so think like presumably uh, you have some. Sorry, I, so just like okay, you so, have a. So for me to produce, right? So for me to produce a block and transmit. Mm-hmm. I have to generate, I have to find a data structure such that it, the count of hashes where my block starts reaches my allotted slot. And the easiest way to do it is for me to attach it to your data structure that is like, let's say, at 1 million hashes, right? And then I start from 1 million to 2 million. But I could potentially generate my own from the start and transmit it. And, and this is where like our fork selection and all this other stuff plays in. Right, like if I was somewhere in the dark generating my my hashes and not not propagating them, and then I presented this thing, hey, look at my block, right? <laughs> we people would evaluate the data and they would see that it's um, a fork that is way too old that they've already come to agreement on some some contending fork, and they can't possibly vote on yours and would reject it. So, so I think the the only part I'm not getting so far, and I think is not quite elucidated is um how do i choose um or how do i get the seed from which the slots that i can propose a block at is chosen because there must be some kind of staked system or, or yeah or yeah, some yeah work into that otherwise it's not civil resistant is that yeah correct? so yeah exactly so imagine you have like a, a you know a state machine right and prior based on some prior state in the past history, which we just bootstrap with a Genesis block, <laughs> uh, you look at the, that, that actually defines the schedule of all the 
block producers ahead of time for an epoch. Our epochs are about two days. And then everybody that's in the Genesis block is scheduled to produce. And we use cryptographic signatures to make sure that you're the only producer for that slot. Right. And then like we punish you if you try to produce two blocks for the same slot. Um, and so here's kind of like the, the really clever part. Um, there's kind of two problems in distributed systems um, in, in blockchain specifically. One is data availability and the other one is yeah. kind of like time synchronization. So traditional PBFT systems, everybody, they, all the protocols you ever look at in, in, in every paper, they say we make weak assumptions about time and it works despite these weak assumptions. Um, good luck implementing that. <laughs> <laughs> because what you have to deal with is you have to keep track of your time and effectively everyone else's time and start to like um, decide whether this message is a, too early or too late and, and reject it based on local information that is only local to you. So what that does is it actually creates partitions, right? Like I send a message, mm -hmm. some of the nodes think it's too early, some of the nodes think it's too late and some yep. of them accept it. Um, nice. What we've what we've been able to do is because we have this physically defined kind of like proof of something happening in a moment in time is we don't make weak assumptions about time. We make strong assumptions about time and therefore partitions based yeah. on time are not possible. So all we, right. the only problem we have really is now the data availability problem, which is a huge pain in the ass, <laughs> right? It, it's, it's hard, right? <laughs> but it's only one problem, yeah. right? Now we only have to, to solve one hard problem. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay, so that's fascinating. So, so just walk me through, I mean, I think I get everything apart from, you, you get this kind of regenesis happening yeah. once every two days. And in the meantime, I can, I can say that I would like to become a miner. And then I have to wait in line, I suppose, until the next period starts. Regenesis. Yeah. Have you guys got a word for that? Uh, yeah. So it, it's called the leader schedule. And it's uh, the schedule. end of an epoch defines the leader schedule for the subsequent epoch. So it's like one, one ahead, right? Got it. So like basically we do a bunch, we, we change our stakes around right now, right? And those are not activated until a full epoch after. Um, and what yep. that means is that if we somehow lose network connectivity and the network contain those partitions continue trying to generate this proof of history and don't stop after two days, they diverge and effectively halt. Yeah. Which is fine. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. <laughs> okay. All right. So, so you're building up during these epochs, very large amounts of data, I assume. Yeah which I think is what leads us to where we are today. Yeah. If you want to maybe outline how you, yeah. Yeah. And now we so on. So like, um, actually like this was like a problem that I had to solve in the white paper. Like how do we, how are we going to deal with data? And I had this design, um, which is fairly complicated. Um, and the way it worked is that like, we try to randomly assign this previous history of the ledger to a bunch of different like kind of chunks with erasure coding and those erasure codes are spread out amongst validators and they generate proofs. And then somebody looks at those proofs and then they decide whether those proofs are valid or not. Right. And like try to fishermen each other, a big mess. <laughs> so we never built it. And this is, this is why we've been able to launch is we basically said, let's solve that problem when we actually have so much data that it's expensive to store. 
in a, in about a hundred days, we've generated about 900 gigabytes, um, which is pretty large, right? But not like insurmountable. It's enough that humans can throw like hard drives at it. Um, but the data availability for that is a tough problem because what we really want is people to have that history and data available and for us to not be the only people that store it. Um, so right now we, we're dumping it all in Bigtable, which is expensive. But what I would really like is like something like that design that we had, but something that works. So <laughs> when I saw your paper, I like, you know, it's been two years that I was just like trying to launch Solana as fast as I could. Um, and like really like not having time to really look at what folks have been working on. I've heard of you guys before. And um, I, when I actually read the paper, just like in the abstract, I was like, oh, this is perfect. <laughs> Somebody solved this. <laughs> we don't have to deal with this anymore. Um, so I was like really impressed with the with, with the design and the fact that you guys actually do the indexing is like kind of the key part because what people really want is like how do I given this large data set how do I find the actual data um, and to me that's like if you can build a open distributed decentralized big table. I think that is like kind of a, a really huge thing, right? Like that, that, that to me is like a, a really massive accomplishment. Well, what we find so funny is that like uh, when we started Arweave, it was really just going to be this big permanent data store. And that is what the core protocol became. But then we realized pretty quickly, well, one of the awesome things you can build on top of that is not just an archive of static web pages, but also um, dynamic web applications that live forever and outside any single person's yep. control. It's decentralized web apps, essentially. Um, but of course, to have decentralized web apps properly, you, you've got to have um, some kind of database system because most yep. modern websites are you know, static files and database interactions, broadly. A little bit of compute, but like that's the, that's the basis of the system. Um, and so we just sort of attached a database that indexed the, the transactions and the tags that from Arweave. Um, and people... People love it. It's fascinating. It's really one of the things that, that um, the community uh, finds so valuable when they're trying to actually build on top of the system is that you can just easily query it. And then when we got talking, this seemed to be something that really like, um, yeah, played with you. And, and similarly with Scale, who are kind of using um, even in a, in a similar use case, they're also really excited that you can just get these uh, yeah, transactions and blocks, put them inside Arweave and then have them queryable using a, a fast and simple like GraphQL interface. And on the back end, it's using Postgres, which is also yeah. you know, super fast and like basic um, for the non-blockchain world. But it seems to be a big, big deal here. Well, it's like, um, I mean, like there's a solution for this, right? It's big table. It works, but it's owned by Google. It's hosted by Google, right? There's no like guarantees yeah. that this stuff will ever go away. And I think we're going to have a world where there's incredibly large public data sets that need to be stored and accessible globally. And I think ledgers are yeah. some of those, but I honestly think there's just going to be like more complicated data structures um, that are more persistent. Um, and like a lot of the projects that I'm thinking of are like based on that. Like the things that we're building right now, like uh, that the Serum Foundation is building at Tapa Solana, is a central limit order book where all the data and the trades right are occurring on a public chain. If we have data availability and, ex and a historical access to all that trade data that is like mm -hmm. guaranteed and public and easy to query. I 
think that's like just massive, right? That that that's going to create so much like um, positive feedback loops because traders want that data. They need to train their models, right? It's accessible, and yep. because this is public data, that all this information, right? Like we're doing like semantic compression over these like public databases to then act and create more of this public data, right? <laughs> that, that, that to yeah, me is like absolutely. where the future is going. Like, uh, um, and I'm really excited that we have like, we don't have to build this. I'm, I'm super excited. <laughs> um, We're happy to have done that for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. So so whereabouts is Solana? Like you, you say you launched mainnet slightly smaller if i understand than your test net so is there like a kind of a uh, oh yes of, uh, yeah so like coming up? um it, it's just a, our validator pipeline is like when people are like hey can i run a node we're like okay go run on testnet we'll give you a grant and this is why there's more validators in testnet and after a month of you surviving in testnet you you can take your grant which is on mainnet and go run it um and it's been helping us just to get people to like understand what they're doing a little bit, educate them. Um, so where we're at in development is like we're feature complete. It's a anti-fragile system, which involves the code, the community, the validators, the foundation, the team. Um, complicated, right? <laughs> but uh, mm-hmm. we're calling it beta. I think really like uh, I felt very insistent on calling it beta for one year. Just like if we don't have any catastrophic failures for a year, I'd feel pretty confident taking the tag off. But I think just being honest with people, this is, everything is new. It's brand new architecture, brand new design, a crazy idea. I don't know if there's horrible holes, (laughs) right? It's impossible to know, right? Um, I'm hoping that if we survive for a year, then, um, we would have some confidence that we've basically kind of like um, we can survive. Like at least we have fifty percent chance to survive another year, right? <laughs> yeah, it reminds me of uh, the the mail, mailing list announcement that Satoshi made about Bitcoin, where it says explicitly, "This is, I mean, it's running. You can connect to it, but we might need to reset it. I don't know." Yeah, they never did reset it, but like, yeah, <laughs> yeah when they when they launched it, they made it pretty clear that it was just kind of. Um, they were playing about and seeing if it worked. And interestingly, people still adopted it as money, at least for a while, like in certain areas of the internet, like people were using it like that. Um, yeah, it's pretty fascinating. Certainly when we started, uh, we've, uh, we started with like a, I mean, it was, it was feature complete, but we started easing people in. You know, we, we um, started with like, basically you had to ask us very politely for the, for the mining IP addresses, which we gave to you. And then someone obviously leaked and it was fine, but like, it, it just meant that the growth was a little bit slow at the beginning and then it became gradually uh, wider and, and then, you know, completely publicly available and known. Um, but yeah, it created that little area where there was time to kind of, uh, you know, look at how the system actually worked in practice rather than just on our test nets. The incentivized test nets were a really interesting um, idea. How, how's yours going? Um, Ours went really well. So like, um, I was lucky enough to met Zaki like super early on and, um, from Cosmos foundation. And we kind of had the same base of validators because of the hardware needs for our chain. Like we were kind of started with a more like established validators, like Cosmos service one, those folks. Um, so those were like our early validators and they're 
kind of learnings that they brought from Cosmos helped us really accelerate how quickly we were able to go from stuff that barely works and fails in 20 minutes to like, oh, wow, it's been running for three days. <laughs> that's, that's surprising. <laughs> um, and so we've kind of just continued moving it like because the it's been fairly successful as just an onboarding experience for new folks. There's kind of a built-in community. People jump in like, hey, how do I run a validator? What's Tour de Soul? We call it Tour de Soul because um, we're cycling nerds like myself and like a uh-huh. bunch of the the folks are like Ironman athletes or used to be at this point. Um, but like um, the it, it, it allows people to just kind of like learn how to run the software. I think in the mining kind of base chains um that experience is a little different because you're like um you're not building a high an ha system right you're building like a a low availability system in which everybody is like creates an ha system which is a totally interesting different interesting problem yeah yeah for sure i mean it's you can't really get it wrong I mean, you can let's see. You can you cannot set it up correctly, so it doesn't produce blocks. But it's not like you can set it up in such a fashion it's going to, uh, yeah, be a danger to you or the system, essentially, yeah. with a mining based protocol. But yeah, yeah, it sounds so, like yours is much more. Um, so, so the difference is that like validators, um, because they sign votes, and those votes, uh, mm-hmm. if they double double vote or something like that, those votes uh, can be slashed which means that you can be a danger to yourself. You kind of have different attack vectors and different requirements. Um, So the, these systems are obviously like different. I've, I've always wondered if it would be like it, to me, it seems like there's like, like a mining based network, like have like these Nakamoto consensus properties, right? Like that you have, um, some objectivity about what is the true chain, right? And you can, once you get the data, right, you just switch over. And like these yeah. PBFD systems have weak subjectivity where the bounds are very fast and hard. As soon as this thing comes to agreement, there's no going back, right? <laughs> right. If we see a different fork, basically like we halt. <laughs> like it's, those are yeah. like, I think fundamentally, they're just two different families of things, right? And I think the setups and the kinds of validations, validators or miners and both are going to be different. Um, and people, this is where, like, I think half of crypto Twitter, the arguments are, are, are people just kind of circling around this idea that, like, the, these systems are different. And I think both have uses. And I don't even know if it's possible to combine the best of both properties into one. Yeah, yeah you're absolutely right. I'm- I would say it's probably not to that last question. Yeah. <laughs> right. It, it feels like okay, and cool. a gut instinct. So, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It feels like one of those cap theorem type things. Like we yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. the bottom of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. So so what's next for you guys? Um, so we are like um the consensus and the smart contracts engine runs um if folks are listening um they should go check out break.solana.com unfortunately we just had an upgrade so there's about one day where mainnet transactions are are not 
mainnet is just doing consensus while this upgrade is stabilizes, which happens to be stabilized. But you can play break on the test on the test net. So if you go to break.solana.com, you smash your keyboard and it sends a transaction for every key press and basically gives you settlement uh, notification like nearly instantly in like 1.3 seconds. Um, and it is like, I think some folks that have been working on dApps, they've told us that they're, it broke their brain. <laughs> that, that you can have <laughs> like a, cool. a decentralized application that has like nearly like basically the same kind of speed that you do in a centralized one. Um, that means you can have like financial, fin- like financial guarantees about something and events in your game or your app or your like consumer based product that don't feel any different than you would on like a AWS hosted site application. So what's next for us is like finding those folks where like they feel that like they understand the space. Right. And they're like, Oh shit, this is like, this is, this breaks my brain and getting them to build on Solana to me that, that those are like the key parts. Um, and this is kind of like a, I'm, I imagine like when you figured out that like indexing is what people want and I'm like, Holy shit, this is what I want. <laughs> like find all those people. Right. Like, and we'll, we'll be your best yeah. customers. So th- this is how we're looking for. Like people that basically see that um, they see the possibilities of a fast blockchain. Um, one of those is like the, yeah. the serum folks, which was like, um, find it, like the the idea of a central limit order book on an open decentralized blockchain is kind of a it's a whole new thing that's never been done before, and it is a crazy thing. Right. Um, yeah, because sure. like how I imagine a system like Solana playing out is that I I believe that this global globally verified computation, I think fundamentally it's like an engine of price discovery. And it could be things for like in-game items, like stuff of low value, right? Like memes or jokes, but it could also be for things that are very expensive and high value. And if you have this like thing that is discovering prices globally within like three, 400 milliseconds, that means that the opportunity for arbitrage and to give people incorrect prices in their local markets is now dramatically reduced. We basically like start to smooth out all of these right. speed bumps in the global marketplace. Um, and that's like, I think that's massive, cool. right? Yeah. That, that, that's like, to me, that's like yeah. a massive thing. Sure. <laughs> that's amazing. Okay. So, so if, Anyone watching this from the Aweave community wants to sort of get started with Solana smart contracts. Where do they go? Uh, docs.solana.com. Fairly simple. Um, and, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> and like we have a hello world example just to get you started. Um, you can also look, play around with break and look at the source code there. And that's more sophisticated because it kind of deals with like, how do I get the fastest possible confirmation and like display it? Cause like, you know, fast consensus is one part, right? It's like data storage is one part. People need like all the other tooling and all the other stuff. So break will give you that. And then there's um, in our GitHub, I don't know if, the, I'm pretty sure that's also linked in the docs. There's a Solana program library, which is kind of like our mm-hmm. standard template library. like for, And it's got implementations for tokens and 
like a swap style exchange and memo programs and kind of simple things that you might need so you don't have to build them again. Cool. Amazing. All right. Well, any last things to say? Um, I'm curious where you guys see like the future of RVV. Like I'm, I was, I'm, I'm fascinated with this like idea of a global public big table for open data because I think the, his, yeah, like, like having open history, like is, is really cool. Right. Like I think it, it itself creates its own ecosystem. For sure. It, it, open history is actually a perfect phrase for it. So we see, I mean, it's pretty simple in essence. We just see a permanent decentralized web emerging where people can contribute to humanity's shared set of knowledge and just have it live on forever. Um, essentially like a database of every valuable thought anyone's ever had and bothered to put to paper. We just want to make sure that that's perpetuated and timestamped verifiably. Um, yeah, so that in the future, we can look back at the present and understand what was happening better and also not lose track of all the valuable uh, knowledge that we create along the way. I, I guess that's where, where we think it's going in 10 years. Anyway, I, I think we're just running a little bit over. Um, but thank you so much for your time. It was great to have you on. Yeah, 100%. This was awesome. Always a pleasure talking to you. Cool. <laughs> you too. Yeah. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Bye. Take care. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more, you can find further information about both Arweave and Solana in the description. Be sure to follow Arweave on social media for the next episode of Hack and Tell. See you on the permaweb.